0: and author of the book Harvest of Empire, a history of Latinos in America. He spoke at the City University of New York in late December. And now, Juan Gonzalez.
1: Consider these remarks the first draft of a possible memoir or simply chalk them up to my inability to shake off my old role in the Young Lords as Minister of Education. Tonight in this talk, I hope to use the lens of my work in a variety of grassroots Latino organizations that fought to achieve social and racial justice to oppose colonialism and imperialism with a special focus on what they can teach today's generation. In retrospect, this area was perhaps my most important life's work. It eventually led to my writing of Horace of Empire, which to my complete surprise became perhaps the best-selling work in the United States on Latino history of the past 20 years. The book's main thesis is that the massive Latino presence in the United States today, more than 62 million people and growing, is a direct result of the late 19th and early 20th century penetration and pillaging of Latin America by US banks, corporations, and the military. Latinos, quite simply, are the harvest of the empire, an unintended harvest for sure, but one nonetheless. But there's another reason why I feel the need to speak out now, a deep concern that an unhealthy trend has begun to take hold in recent years among some sectors of black and Latinx progressives, especially among intellectuals and academics. A trend that needs to be challenged directly through a principled but respectful debate, one that draws vital lessons from the Latino community's long and heroic history of grassroots struggles. I'm referring to a false fixation in many progressive circles with anti-black racism as the burning political question of the day. To the point that some well-meaning but misguided folks now claim the concept of Latinos itself or the existence of Latin America, uh, are anti-black and white supremacist in essence. This fixation has dovetailed perfectly with a new strategy by America's neoliberal capitalists to finance a sprawling new diversity, equity, and inclusion industry, they call it DEI, in our universities, in corporate workplaces, and in the foundation world all meant to systematically co-opt any movements for radical change, to further divide and deviate the masses of the people from uniting against the real source of our common oppression, American capitalism and imperialism, and to avoid any acknowledgement of the persistence of class conflicts among people of color. We who founded the New York Young Lords more than 50 years ago also confronted and rejected similar efforts. I've often been amazed how the image and actions of the Lords as militant revolutionaries continue to spark enduring fascination among young activists, yet too often the content of what we stood for gets lost. It was July 26, 1969. A few dozen of us, most barely out of our teens, gathered together in Tompkins Square Park in purple berets and green field jackets and announced to the world that the Young Lords were here, determined to become the Puerto Rican arm of a social revolution that was then sweeping the world. I was 21 then, barely the oldest member of the original Central Committee. The average age of our membership was 17. Over the next few years, we astonished ourselves and everyone around us with what we managed to accomplish, how we freed our minds, taught ourselves history and politics, changed our ways of relating to each other, forced those in power to respond to our community's demands for systemic change, how we consciously shaped and controlled our own narrative through our own newspaper Palante, our own radio show on WBAI and our deft handling of the commercial and corporate press. In almost no time, we awakened an entire generation of young Latinos I have always felt immensely privileged to have been part of this most talented, dedicated, and committed group of people at all levels, not just leadership. And still marvel at how young we were when we did all these things. How fearless in the face of all those who were older and more skeptical, who kept telling us we wouldn't accomplish much. For a brief period, we naively believed nothing could stop us that a revolution was around the corner then came the reaction by those in power as it always does the police repression the call pro campaigns of the nixon era the sectarianism and infighting that weakened us from within and turned us against each other all of it made worse by our own youthful arrogance a conceit fueled by all the initial success and all the fawning media attention that went to our heads. Mao Tse called that death by sugar-coated bullets. That was followed by the counter-revolution of the Reagan-Bush era. All-out attempts to bury the memory of everything that radical groups like the Young Lords or the Black Panthers or Los Siete or La unida or SNCC represented but it wasn't just the daring actions of the Lords that are important to remember our garbage offenses, our healthcare programs, our occupations of institutions, our confrontations with the police who were terrorizing our neighborhoods, our organizing of prison inmates, to demand better conditions, our protests advocating for Puerto Rican and black studies programs at the universities. Even more significant was our analysis of race, class, and empire an analysis that stemmed from the very composition of our group. We were, after all, the sons and daughters of working class migrants from the U.S.'s largest colonial territory. Long before decoloniality became a popular school of thought in academia, the Lords began exposing not just the political and the economic facts of colonialism, but its psychological effect. The colonized mentality, first identified by Frantz Fanon, a primitive political manifesto written in 1972, entitled The Ideology of the Young Lord's Party, expressed it best, and I quote, we can only unchain our minds from the colonized mentality if we learn our true history, understand our culture, and work towards unity. The Lords were also perhaps the first Latino political group in the United States whose leadership was primarily black. And this rarely gets acknowledged. Of the six early members of our central committee, three were Afro-Puerto Rican, Felipe Luciano, Pablo yoruba Guzman, and Juan Fiortiz. One was African-American, Denise Oliver, and two, poor light-skinned Puerto Ricans, David Perez, and myself. More than 25% of our total membership was African-American or Afro-Latino. Thus, our, every, our very existence directly challenged racial prejudice within our own communities. In that 1972 manifesto, an essay by Denise Oliver eloquently explained what we referred to as the non-conscious ideology of racism among Latinos, one that had been instilled in us by colonialism. We should not be afraid to criticize ourselves about racism, Denise wrote. We are all racist, not because we want to be, but because we are taught to be that way to keep us divided because it benefits the capitalist system. And this applies to racism toward Asians, toward other Brown people and toward white people. White people are not the oppressor, capitalists are. We will never have socialism until we are free of these chains on our minds. That was Denise Oliver in 1972. Back then, we always distinguished between the individual racial biases imbued in us by colonialism and capitalism, what we refer to as contradictions among the people, and the systematically racist policies of the society's major institutions, which we called antagonistic contradictions between classes. How different and clear that analysis is compared to all the claptrap we hear these days about diversity, equity, and inclusion, with employee training sessions proliferating everywhere that supposedly aim at rooting out anti-black bias among individuals, but only result in confusion, mistrust, and division among their participants. Sessions run by so-called diversity consultants paid as much as $1,000 per hour by the very forces that perpetuate systemic racial and class oppression. As a natural outgrowth of the Lord's analysis, we developed close and excellent working relationships with a variety of radical groups of that era, including the Panthers, the Republic of New Africa, the Congress of African Peoples, the Union of Democratic Filipinos, Students for a Democratic Society, the Revolutionary Union, and the Young Patriots. And we were also founding members of the original Rainbow Coalition created by the late great Panther leader, Fred Hampton. In short, we never sought to focus on what divides racial and ethnic groups, but instead to elevate what unites us. After the lords fell apart, many of us moved on to other movements and causes. But we always held fast to the slogan, unite the many to defeat the few. By the 1970s, I was working with the African Liberation Support Committee in Philadelphia, helping to raise financial and political support for the liberation movements in Africa against white minority rule in Rhodesia, South Africa, and Mozambique. This was also the era of Frank Rizzo, a notorious racist dictatorial mayor and former police chief of Philadelphia who attempted in 1978 to remove term limits so he could remain mayor for life. In an effort to build the widest possible movement against this power grab, I took a job as co-coordinator of something called the Stop Rizzo Coalition. And within that broader group spearheaded Puerto Ricans united against Rizzo. There, I work closely not only with liberal Democrats, uh, Paul Tully, for example, a Kennedy Democrat who would later become the chief strategist of Bill Clinton's presidential victory, was my co-coordinator, but with Republicans as well, with several ex-members of the Black Panther Party, like Reggie Shell in the Black United Front, housing activists like John and Milton Street, legendary DJ and civil rights leader Georgie Woods at WDAS, And all of us together managed in a few short weeks to register more than 100,000 new voters in the black and Puerto Rican communities and engineer a massive turnout that overwhelmingly defeated Rizzo's referendum ploy and paved the way for modern black political power in Philadelphia government. One of the early movement's most inspiring moments was a militant march organized by the Street Brothers into the heart of Rizzo territory, South Philadelphia's Whitman Park area where a coalition of right-wing whites had prevented the building of a federal public housing project for 25 years. More than 2,000 of us from the city's black and Puerto Rican community marched straight through the middle of South Philadelphia to Whitman Park, even as hundreds of angry residents tossed bottles and eggs and shouted racist obscenities at us. More than any single event, the Whitman Park March became a symbol that the era of legally sanctioned racism in Philadelphia was over. Milton Street would eventually become a state senator, his brother John Street would go on to be the president of the Philadelphia City Council and a two term mayor of that city. Those of us in the Latino community who took part in that march soon formed the Puerto Rican Alliance, a broad umbrella group of grassroots organizations like the Street Brothers were doing in the black community The Alliance began to organize Puerto Rican families in Philadelphia to take over or squat in abandoned homes owned by the federal government, of which there were thousands in the city at the time. We soon had more than 150 squatter families just in the Puerto Rican community. We orchestrated repeated protests at HUD's offices to demand the titles to these properties. We held a surprise occupation with the families and their children at Philadelphia's famous Independence Hall. (laughs) and an even more dramatic occupation of President Jimmy Carter's Pennsylvania campaign headquarters on the day before Carter was to face Ted Kennedy in their tight 1980 primary for the Democratic presidential nomination. Carter's people were so desperate to get our people out of their building because they needed it for the, the primary the next day and that his aides secretly agreed to grant the squatters title to their homes if we would just leave before the opening of the polls. It was an enormous victory, a concrete victory that bettered the lives of hundreds of the lowest income Puerto Ricans in the city. And it came about only because of bold young lord-like actions and thanks to our close work and class solidarity with major African-American radical activists because neither the upper strata of Philadelphia's Puerto Rican community nor that of the black community gave a damn about or had any connection to the plight of homeless families back then. Between 1971 and 1973, black and Latino community organizations across the United States filed more than 340 challenges at the Federal Communications Commission against the radio and television licenses of stations in virtually every major city in America all demanding that people of color be hired in greater numbers and that programming better reflect the composition of the communities those stations served. A succession of racial discrimination lawsuits roiled major news organizations, such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Associated Press, and the Daily News. The result was the first great democratic revolution in the American media, with a sudden influx of young black and brown journalists into the nation's newsrooms who posed the first significant challenge to the reigning narratives about Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, and other people of color. After the Lords disintegrated, several of us in the organization's original leadership drifted toward careers in the media. I ended up being hired as a young reporter at the Philadelphia Daily News in 1978, right after we defeated Rizzo. At the time, I was the only Latino journalist with a full-time job in the city's mainstream media, including all the radio and television stations and the four daily newspapers. Then, in the early 1980s, a handful of Puerto Ricans landed jobs as producers or on-air reporters. They began producing reports for local TV, as I did in the newspaper, on the resistance by the Fishermen's Association of Vieques to the U.S. Navy bombing of their island. Such stories would never have made the news back then, were it not for the handful of journalists who were cognizant of Puerto Rico's history and understood their responsibility to assure a new kind of coverage about the island's colonial status. My most vivid recollection in that regard came in January of 1981 with the campaign against the racist Hollywood movie, Fort Apache of the Bronx. Richie Perez, an old comrade from young Lord's days and later to be a fellow member of the National Congress for Puerto Rican Rights, was then leading the committee against Fort Apache in a militant boycott movement against a film that had spread across the country. The editor-in-chief of the Philadelphia Daily News was well aware of my history as an activist, and he insisted that I had to view the film before daring to criticize it in print. So he assigned me to attend an invitation-only press junket and screening that Time Life Films, a production company, had quietly scheduled for the nation's movie critics. The film's producer, David Susskind, its director, Dan Petrie, and its two main actors, Paul Newman and Ed Asner, all enjoyed reputations at the time as Hollywood liberals. Petrie and Newman were scheduled to participate in a Q&A with all the critics during the event. I immediately telephoned Richie Perez in New York and alerted him to the date and place of the screening at the hotel in Atlanta a city apparently chosen by Time Life to avoid any possible protests. Ritchie purchased an airplane ticket and booked a room at the same hotel. Once we arrived in Atlanta, I shared with him a copy of the agenda of the two days. It called for a luxurious reception the first evening after which the reporters would board a bus in front of the hotel for a ride to a nearby movie theater for the screening. But when the reporters filed into the buses, they encountered Ritchie standing at the door in a suit and tie, and handing out glossy press packets. Except the packets were not touting the film. They contained literature against it from the Committee Against Fort Apache and press clippings of all the protests. Before the time life security guards even became aware of what was happening, Ritchie had boarded the bus, introduced himself, and made a quick speech to the assembled critics about the campaign. He then announced a hospitality suite in his hotel room after the screening to further discuss the racist, anti-Puerto Rican nature of the film. More than, more than a dozen reporters subsequently took him up on his invitation. The following morning at the press conference with Paul Newman uh, and Petri, Richie was outside the conference room. Again, distributing literature. Hotel security guards attempted to remove him, whereupon a short scuffle ensued, with Ritchie insisting that as a paying guest at the hotel, he had every right to be in the hallway. Uh, during the actual press conference, Newman and Petrie were visibly shaken by the commotion outside. There's no doubt in my mind that the generally negative reviews of Fort Apache that subsequently appeared in the nation's newspapers when the film opened the following month were doing no small part to the massive community opposition to the film, and to that contentious press junket in Atlanta that Richie had crashed. For one brief moment, the distorted narrative about Puerto Ricans in America had not simply been challenged, it had been delegitimized. Richie and I were soon working together again in the newly formed National Congress for Puerto Rican Rights, an extraordinary mass organization with several thousand members that functioned throughout the 1980s and early 1990s combining many former members of the Young Lords, of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, of El Comité, as well as young labor activists and community organizations and elected officials into into statewide groups in Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, and for a time in Florida. Members of the Congress achieved real political advances for Puerto Ricans in places like Boston, Hartford, Philadelphia, Vineland, New Jersey and other smaller towns. Through its Justice Committee, the Congress became the leading group exposing the epidemic of police brutality against Latinos in cases like the murder of David Baez, of Hilton Vega and Anthony Rosario, Federico Pereira. Richie, in particular became known throughout the country for his work leading the Justice Committee and he often was the main person in the Latino community working side by side with Reverend Al Sharpton, Charles Barron and other black leaders on Police abuse cases in the black community. But as the Latino population of the US grew, and as the Puerto Rican population of the Midwest and Northeast became more dispersed throughout the nation, the ethnic groups within the Latino community that compose the lower strata of the working class changed. Today, even on the East Coast, it is Mexican and Central American migrants who increasingly fill the lowest paying and most oppressive jobs in society. At the same time, migration from the middle and upper classes of Latin America has accelerated over the past few decades from countries such as Colombia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and even Puerto Rico, with many Latin Americans from well-to-do families often traveling to the U.S. to study, then staying to fill professional and academic jobs in this country. In the universities, that has led to the phenomenon of wealthy Latin Americans having disproportionate influence over ethnic studies programs that were originally created from the battles of working-class Puerto Ricans and Chicanos raised in the barrios of the United States, yet the current students of those programs are increasingly Mexican, Salvadoran, and Guatemalan children of peasant and working-class migrants. In other words, class differences have sharpened dramatically within the Latino community. I witnessed this directly when I began teaching at Rutgers University in 2017. The population of New Brunswick, the city where Rutgers' main campus is located, is about 50% Latino. But that population is largely Mexican and Central American since the city's historic Puerto Rican community declined ages ago due to previous waves of gentrification and out-migration. In late 2019, my wife and I became involved in a major community struggle against displacement of low-income Latino families. Neighborhood parents were determined to prevent Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital, part of the state's largest hospital chain, and the Rutgers Cancer Institute from purchasing and demolishing one of the city's best-performing public schools, Lincoln Annex, to make way for a huge new hospital expansion. Of the school's 750 pupils, 94% were Latino, mostly from immigrant Mexican and Central American families, with many of the parents unable to vote. So the city's political elite figured it would be easy to remove them from the rapidly gentrifying downtown area around the hospital. A broad coalition arose of community residents, progressive Rutgers faculty, and students to oppose the sale. The movement spearheaded repeated militant protests and rallies by hundreds of people, social media campaigns, repeated disruptions of Board of Education and City Council hearings, and several lawsuits filed by Latino Justice Preldiff. It quickly emerged as a textbook example of oppressed working-class Latinos demanding basic respect and of a university community opposing injustice from its own hierarchy. Amazingly, at these government meetings, many of the officials backing the gentrification were from the cities of Puerto Rican, Dominican, and African American elite. They were people who had long ago been integrated into local political machines and who functioned as mouthpieces and defenders for it. In the midst of the campaign, the coronavirus pandemic erupted, followed by the national economic shutdown, all of which forced the coalition to defend Lincoln genetics to adopt new tactics of resistance. Since the city's immigrant households have been devastated by the pandemic and were receiving no government assistance as most officials retreated to the safety of their homes and remote work, we in the coalition launched a mutual aid effort and a GoFundMe page to assist those families. We managed within a few short weeks to raise more than $23,000 and to rapidly distribute cash grants of three to 500 uh, to nearly 70 families. It was a remarkable show of grassroots perseverance and unity in the face of public health crisis and economic collapse. But what struck me most in the Lincoln Annex battle was not just the betrayal of those black and Latino officials. It was that the coalition attracted greater participation from the university's white and African American progressive faculty and students than it did with a handful of notable accessions from the faculty and students of the Latino studies program at Rutgers who in prior decades would have been at the forefront of such a struggle. And my fear is that this is no anomaly. Across the country, ethnic studies departments born out of community activism of the 1960s that once championed publicly engaged scholarship and which still claim to be the voice of the marginalized and oppressed are increasingly disconnected from the working class Latino populations that often reside just steps from their ivy-covered walls. At some of these universities, black and Latino scholars eagerly line up to apply for new diversity, equity, and inclusion grants that will increase their personal prestige, bring them greater pay, or win them release from teaching loads. While they remain eerily silent about their own universities' neoliberal policies for cutting teaching expenditures and ignoring or displacing the low-income communities around them or endlessly raising student tuition. Many of those students, meanwhile, are forced to burden themselves with ever-growing debt while receiving instruction largely from time, poorly compensated, and contingent lecturers who themselves face little job security and inadequate working conditions. Quite simply, the inconveniences, injustices, or racial slights of academia and other professional sectors do not compare to the magnitude of the very real social and economic problems confronting more than 60 million people of Latin American descent in the United States or that of the more than 3 million Latino students in higher education today.
0: You're listening to Juan Gonzalez on The Young Lords. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's one 800 Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
1: Little wonder that Kwame Nkrumah, the legendary Pan-African socialist and first president of Ghana, noted in his last book, Class Struggles in Africa, quote, and I'm quoting Nkrumah, the intelligentsia always leads the national movements, the nationalist movement in its early stages. It aspires to replace the colonial power, but not to bring about a radical transformation of society. The object is to control the system rather than to change it, since the intelligentsia tends as a whole to be bourgeois minded and against revolutionary transformation. My references tonight to Fanon and Nkrumah and the evolution of class struggle among colonial peoples is for a reason. In the Young Lords, the colonial condition of our homeland was always central to our identity. Our iconic button featured a map of the island and the slogan, Tengo Puerto Rico en mi corazón. I have Puerto Rico in my heart. And an end to U.S. colonial control was a key plank of our program. The lessons of that for today are important to grasp. Fifty years ago, we used to say that the Puerto Rican people were a divided nation, one-third of us living in the United States and two-thirds in Puerto Rico. Today, those statistics have been dramatically reversed. Some 5.8 million Puerto Ricans now reside in the United States, while just 3.2 million reside on the island, according to the 2020 census five-eighths of our population, in other words, is now here. There are today four Puerto Ricans in Congress with a vote. Nidia Velasquez, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Richie Torres from New York, and Darren Soto from Central Florida. There is only one in Congress from the island, Resident Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez, and she has no vote. The bulk of the political power of the Puerto Rican people, in other words, is now here in the United States. All of these changes affect how activists and scholars approach the real world solutions to Puerto Rico's colonial condition, especially in the wake of the debt crisis, Promesa, Hurricane Maria, a series of earthquakes, all of which have combined to bring unprecedented calamity to the island's residents. As I have urged repeatedly for years, there's an urgent need for more anti imperialist scholars to dedicate themselves to analyzing how changes in the world capitalist economy have manifested themselves in Puerto Rico over the past 20 or 30 years. It is time we acknowledge that globalization has rendered historic concepts of national independence almost meaningless. You no longer need foreign armies to control the population. When you can read everyone's mail, tap everyone's phone, empty a country's coffers and paralyze its economy from afar, through satellites, instant wire transfers, and simple cancellations of bank credit lines. Today, small nations need more creative and flexible tactics to defend themselves from bullying by larger ones, to assert national sovereignty in an increasingly interdependent world. And Puerto Rican activists will never successfully tackle such problems with rote references to conditions 50 years ago. I don't claim to have all the answers only that we must work harder than ever to find solutions, and that we must never forget to ask what class interest is served by any solution. My observations tonight are not meant to needlessly cast fault on anyone, only to emphasize that the crucial test of our ideas and actions, no matter how high-sounding the words, comes in the crucible of popular struggle especially if that struggle requires confrontation with the very institutions to which you belong or that employ you. That is how it was more than 50 years ago when I first became a young Lord and judging by the widespread youth rebellions across the nation, the black lives matter, immigrant rights and climate change movements. That is how it will continue to be in the future because all the accumulated knowledge and experience of radicals and progressives and revolutionaries mean nothing unless we draw the right lessons unless they lead us to a freer, more just world. One where the fight against class oppression and empire remains at the center of everything we do.
2: We're gonna take uh, a few questions. Good evening, I'm actually a mentee of Richie Perez and I met you many years ago when I was involved with the racial justice um, coalition that we had started around police brutality. And I just want to thank you for that anecdote that you shared about Richie. It really meant the world to me. He was such an important person in my development as an educator. And the only reason why I'm still a teacher today, 25 years in, is because of Richie. He encouraged me to stay in there and work with youth in, in the public schools, and I'm still doing that today. And I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.
1: Hi. I, I just, uh, just want to say one thank you for the lecture. It was amazing. Two, race and power... We're, we are in a time when we seem to be, as racialized people, seem to be further and further disenfranchised. What can people do to kind of, like, try to organize a little bit better? Because, you know, I work in technology, and, and one of the things that I see that's super important is organized labor. And I felt that organized labor is the one true path to class or solidarity. Do you agree with that? Like, how can we do a better job of organizing in 2023? You mentioned you work in technology. I believe tech workers are a fundamental part of of being able to change society. In any place you work today, who are the most important people in the workplace? The systems managers, the people who operate your communication systems. They have much more power uh, than do ordinary workers. And and many of the exposés, that we're seeing coming out of the military and the defense establishment are a result of systems people uh, rebelling against uh, the information that they are required to acquire and use for surveillance. Uh, so I think it's extremely important for the continued organization of, the, of technology workers. Uh, the problem is capitalism is a very resilient system. Mm -hmm. When it sees a threat, it figures out it. You can't assume that what it's doing today is what it's going to be doing tomorrow or the next day. It's constantly fine tuning and changing its methods of domination. Uh, And I think that, therefore, you have to be constantly analyzing and figuring out what's the next tactic or or that the system is going on. As I said before, uh, the diversity, equity, inclusion industry that has arisen in the last few years is a direct attempt to quiet the masses. The first time I saw the NBA put Black Lives Matter on its, the hardwood of its floors, I said, what the heck is this about? These are some of the most racist, oppressive people, the owners of these NBA franchises, but they are temporarily conceding space in order to let the movement die down so they can then come back and reassert their domination in the future. So you have to look at the reforms. You have to judge the reforms or the concessions by how they attack uh, the fundamentals of the society, the class divisions in the society, and not get bought off or confused or deviated by the outward manifestations of a system that is temporarily making concessions to quiet people down.
3: My name is Larry from uh, the Bronx, and so coming from the Bronx, but having spent much time, uh, uh, some in East Harlem and the People's Church, I wanted to say to Juan we appreciate the education, the hands-on education that some young people and older people got in the health services and the immediate uh, attention to care of people in the community, which was not being given under capitalistic medicine. And uh, so, one short vignette, when I also was starting teaching in a vocational school, there was one young man, uh, uh, Jose Cruz, who wrote on the blackboard in large letters, Y L O B P P S D S. And he started erasing it as soon as I walked in the door, thinking this teacher would, would, would criticize. And I said, No, 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 please don't erase it. And that was around 1970. And so, I think some of your remarks, uh, recognize the influence on education at any age of people in their daily life and their educations. I thank you.
1: Thank you. And I, I figured somebody would ask me something about health care uh, or, or mention it. And uh, so I, I came prepared with an interesting qu- quote for you all. We sometimes don't really understand the impact of our actions until many years later. I, just earlier this year, learned about enormous impact that the Young Lords had that I had no idea about. And it was Mickey Melendez, who I think is in the audience, who forwarded me an email uh, from Emilio Cajillo. I, I don't know, some people in the audience may know Emilio. He was head of the hospital, Health and Hospitals Corporation under David Dinkins. He was a big vice president of uh, at Columbia Presbyterian, medical doctor, very distinguished person in his field. Emilio sent a, an email to Mickey recently, and I want to read it, because it really, it would touch me more deeply than a lot of the other stuff that the lords have done. He wrote, Hola, Mickey. I'm Emilio Carrillo. Hope all is well. I'm trying to reach Juan Gonzalez in order to share some health care history with the two of you. Back when we were babies, Juan introduced me to Luis Gardner-Costa, another great young lord uh, who passed away recently. At the time, I was a squatter organizer in West 112th Street. The Lords kept an office in one of the apartments where I worked closely with Richie Perez and Aida Cuscao and also coordinated and collaborated with the organization. Back in 1971, Juan found out I was considering whether to study medicine in New York or move to Boston. He encouraged me to go to Boston, where Luis, that's Luis Garden, was working to start a chapter of the Lords while studying at a professional pre-med program hoping to formally become an official medical student at Harvard. He asked me to join Luis in his struggle. To make a long story short, I joined his collective. We ran a tough battle, succeeded in his admission to Harvard Medical School. With the momentum of this tough battle, with the momentum of this success, we founded the first Latino medical student organization in the country, the Boricua Health Organization. Later, we joined Helen Rodriguez, a, a pioneer in public health, uh, in, in, and expanded Boricua Health to New York and beyond. We are celebrating this year the 50th anniversary of the now national organization, the Latino Medical Student Organization, LMSA. The four founders, Luis, Helen, Jaime Rivera, and I, were celebrated this weekend. At the 50th anniversary conference, over 800 people attended, mostly doctors and med students, and the role of Luis and the Lords was duly recognized. We held a moment of silence for him and Helen, since both of them had passed away. It's important that you, Juan, and the other young Lords, not so young anymore, but what the heck, learn about the Luis and the Lords' contribution to diversity and inclusion in medical schools. Thousands of Latinos have been motivated and supported and aided in getting into medicine and are now doctors serving our communities because of that. Salud y siempre pa'lante. Now, this, is a, a, this is an impact of our work that I didn't know about for 50 years. You know, it shows you the, when you change people's minds. Uh, and that's the thing about the lords. So many young lords were leaders. It just wasn't just a top leadership. So many people became leaders in their fields, and I think several of them are here, but uh, many others are not. And I think that was the most important thing. We, cre- we formed leaders uh, to solve problems, change solutions, but always have an ideological basis to everything that they did and understand that empire and class are central to making social change. And uh, so I think that's, the, I, that's what I'm proudest of, all of the people uh, that came out and went, went on to do some fantastic things, including some people. I always tell the story of Nelson Merced. I feel terrible about Nelson Merced. Nelson Merced, we recruited him out into the Young Lords when we were in Puerto Rico. He'd just come out of, of the Vietnam where he'd been in the Navy. He joined the Young Lords in Puerto Rico. And he was very outspoken, sometimes you know, critical of the leadership, but Charismatic and brilliant guy. Some of us got into our heads that he was a police agent. Unfortunately, we expelled him. We publicly accused him of being an undercover police agent. That was a problem with Comintel Pro. You accused the wrong people of being agents and you didn't catch the ones who are agents. right? <laughs> uh, and uh, so, uh, so we expelled Nelson. Nelson moved to Massachusetts. He continued to do work organizing. He created an organization called Inquilinos Poricoas en Acción. Uh, they built a pioneering public housing project in Boston called Villa Victoria. He eventually then ran for polit- political office, and he was elected the first Latino to the Massachusetts state legislature. This is a guy that we kicked out <laughs> supposedly <laughs> for being an agent. Uh, and I have always felt I needed to apologize to Nelson. I haven't seen him. I don't know even if he's still alive. Uh, but there were several of those, Carlos Saponte being another one we erroneously expel them and ruin their lives because of our own immaturity our own uh, lack of foresight and that's why I always tell people don't judge people too harshly give them time Uh, don't jump to conclusions because you could be wrong and when you are wrong you can hurt damage people for years and sometimes for their whole lives so that's one lesson that I learned that I've never let go of Uh, don't rush to judgment on on anyone
3: I am a student currently at Baruch College Myself, I'm a student activist for the last four years. I do different, cover different areas here in New York City. And I want to learn that from your lifetime of advocacy and all the work that you've done, what is kind of like a two part one is what is one of the most strongest aspects of advocacy that you've used yourself and you've seen in others? And what is the most difficult part
1: of advocacy? Most difficult. Art of advocacy is keeping people together. <laughs> people who were in the young adults will tell you, we used to argue and fight all the time. We were constantly uh, arguing and debating. And uh, But when we managed to stay together, we managed to accomplish uh, great things. When we started attacking each other and dividing publicly, that's when the organization began to fall apart. So I think that... Uh, and staying together in a group where you have differences means that everyone has to... Concede sometimes, yes. you know. You have to agree to be in the minority. You you, you can't. Uh, uh, and I I've always told people when you're in leadership of a group, be sure to lose votes. The more votes you lose, the more influence you gain, because people understand that you're not trying to run everything, right? That their voices can be heard. Uh, so don't be afraid. Uh, don't be afraid as an organizer or a leader of a group. Uh, to be, have everyone disagree with you or to vote you down or to have your ideas dismissed. The more that that happens, I believe, the stronger the group becomes because it shows that there is openness to different ideas and to criticism. And uh, So I think that's the keeping people together by agreeing to disagree uh, sometimes. It's the only way you can move forward.
4: Hello. Thank you for your presentation. You began your talk by discussing how the United States had acquired an enormous empire and that resulted in the influx of Hispanics, Latinos to the United States. My question is, looking at the world in which we live today, where the United States' power has been canceled, it is a, it is an empire in retreat. It is You can see it every day, left and right. It no longer has the power. This is the historic juncture for Puerto Rico to achieve its freedom from the United States. What can be done to make that happen? As this scenario presents itself, you have ridiculous suggestions like making Puerto Rico an add-on to making Washington DC a state, as if the Puerto Rican people weren't a nation, as if the Puerto Rican people didn't have the right to be free, and as if that was the only path forward. And the worst thing is that one hears there from people who claim to be progressives. What can be done to assure that Puerto Rico makes the best use of this historic opportunity to rid itself of the U.S., remembering that it's not just the U.S. occupying Puerto Rico, but the role that the bases that they have in Puerto Rico have played in every single one of the military interventions in Latin America in the 20th century, which is something that has disgraced us as a people, because our freedom is also the freedom of all of the people of Latin America. We're going to
0: take these three. Okay. Hi, good evening. Thank you. My name is Maisha Morales. I guess uh, the question I have is, in in recent years, we've had democratic socialist organizations in New, or, and organization in New York City um, that tends to be majority white-led. And whether intentional or not, has silenced the voices of black Puerto Rican and other Latino grassroots activists. Um, and it seems to be that we're getting nowhere. They have co-opted and Our government, they have whitewashed our movement, yet at the same time erasing us. And so I'm asking as an activist, if you have any advice on how to push, really push back against that, um, yeah.
1: Thank you, Juan. I'm a journalist from Mexico. I've, live, I've been living here in, in New York for 14 years, and I'm a graduate student, a uh, graduate center student as well. So you've been a huge influence to me. Um, my, thank you for that. Um, my question is just to use the term Latino, so I wonder what's your take on, on, the, on the terms Latine, Latinx, and what's, what, if you, you could talk a little bit around the, the politics of, of, around these terms. Thank you very much. Okay, well. Um... I'll take that. I'll take that last one first. I've never been a stickler for political battles waged over words. Twenty years ago, there was a big b- battle in the in the Latino community of whether it was the term should be Hispanic or Latino, and 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 now uh, we're increasingly seeing the use of the words uh, Latinx to I- include uh, uh, non-gender binary. The reality is that none of these terms are scientifically correct i use them interchangeably because i understand that most uh people of latin american descent still identify principally uh for, uh in terms of their national origin and if, in case they are indigenous people not even from the uh the national origin from the country of which they come uh and uh, and that generally speaking ethnicity and nationality like race are all social constructs uh, and they change over time uh, and uh, you have the reality that in the United States there has been increasingly a uh, mixing of Latino nationalities, you know, a, a Dominican in New York marries a Puerto Rican and their ch- children have a different identity. A Salvadoran in, in L.A. marries a Mexican and they have a different identity. A, uh, a Cuban or, and Colombian marry in South Florida and their children have a different identity. What is happening is that there is a new sort of social construct being built in the United States, which is the Latino in America, uh, which has some roots from various uh, uh, nationalities and ethnic groups, but also from uh, white Americans and black Americans as well. And so, there is an entirely new social construct that is create, being created, and that whatever we defi- we used to define now, 20 years from now, the young people may. Choose another definition. So I don't think it's necessary to get involved in battles over what's the correct term. Uh, and uh, I generally refer to Latinx more when I'm dealing with younger people uh, who, who really were, were born and raised here. Uh, but I think that all terms are acceptable and none of them are particularly accurate. That's, that's my take on it. And, uh and- In terms of the issue of the democratic socialists, I think it is that's part of the same class struggle. The most revolutionary is not necessarily the person with the most extreme views. Uh, we have a long history in this country of ultra, not just in this country, throughout the world, of ultra-left views uh, posing as revolutionary but only creating division among the people. That doesn't mean that all extreme left views are wrong, but that you can't judge a book by its cover uh and so therefore i think that sometimes a lot of the african american and latino grassroots organizations are misused and abused by black politicians by latino politicians or by uh white radicals and progressives or or or, or white establishment types again go to the what class do they serve Uh, what are their ultimate interests? That's the key issue. Uh, Are they uniting the people or are they dividing the people? That's the key because you can't get change unless more and more people are united. Uh, So I think those are the, the criteria that I use to judge whether people are really operating in the interest of who they claim to serve. Anyway, I guess that's it. You know, thanks for coming.
0: You were just listening to Juan González on The Young Lords. He spoke at the City University of New York in late December. Juan González was a founder of The Young Lords and the author of Harvest of Empire, a History of Latinos in America. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Rami Khouri, Sarah Lee Whitson, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, Alternative Radio. Dot org. For copies of today's program, Juan Gonzalez on the Young Lords, and for his best selling book, Harvest of Empire, just call us 1 800 444 1977. That's 1 800 444 1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternative radio dot o-r-g. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Call us 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there.
4: Ears Have Eyes, an auditory
1: exhibition space for sound art on the radio. Artists respond to a monthly theme, making new compositions and sharing existing sound artworks on CJSW's radio waves. The show invites local, national, and international artists to share auditory aesthetics, spatial soundscapes, spoken word, experimental music, and other recorded media. Ears Have Eyes airs at 8 p.m. on the second Wednesday of every month and is available on cjsw.com under the podcast tab. To learn more and submit your own original sound art to the show, Email ears have eyes at cgsw.com.
2: The University of Calgary, a place of learning, a place of exploration, a place to grow. In this wonderful institution are three places that are very special. Why are they special, you may wonder? The answers are many, but the most important one is the simplest. To join any of these three special places, you merely have to ask. These special three offer one amazing thing that people can do and that people need. Communication. Video. Radio. Print. Print. NUTV, CJSW, The Gauntlet. All three different, but all three have one thing in common communication. Do you want to learn new skills? Do you want to put learned skills to work? Do you want to be creative in the making of communication? Do film, music, and writing have importance to you? Does truth matter to you? NUTV, CJSW, and The Gauntlet offer you the opportunity to follow your principles and your dreams. Third Floor, Mac Hall, East Side. Just do it. It's a life changer.
1: are listening to CGSW on 90.9 fm in calgary we are located on the traditional territories of the treaty seven nation in southern alberta which includes the blackfoot confederacy the sutina first nation and the stony nakoda first nation including the chiniki bear's and wesley first nations the city of calgary is also home to metis nation of alberta region three CJSW is happy to bring attention to local and Canadian artistic talent. This includes music, visual arts, spoken word, comedy, among many others. Thank you for tuning in.